All right, good morning. Listening to Kevin read this passage, realizing that uh, the Olympics has started, I would tell you that uh, we base our sermon series on whatever sporting event is going on, but that would just be a lie, so I won't do that. But uh, we'll just chalk this one up to Providence. All right. The Cambridge Dictionary defines freedom like this. It's the condition or right of being able or allowed to do, say, think, etc., whatever you want to, without being controlled or limited. Now, I don't think very many people would argue um, against the idea that the most esteemed value that we have in America is freedom or liberty. I'm going to argue that freedom is also the greatest idol we have in America. Now, before you check out and write me off as being a Marxist, hear me say this. I'm not going to argue that freedom is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a very good thing. But any good thing that is not God himself can become an idol. And freedom has very much become an idol in America. I'm going to go ahead and, and predict the pushback that I might get. Didn't, didn't Paul write in Galatians that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free? And, and then go on to say that you were called to freedom, brothers? Yeah, he did. And we're going to talk about that passage as we go along. Um, and as we do, I, I, think, I think the fact that, that we have memorized that part of those verses, and we likely can't finish the rest of what those verses say, or, or we don't know what follows in that passage, I think that, that points us to our tendency to idolize freedom. That the rest of that passage in Galatians, it treats Christian freedom very differently than we tend to. Let's take a look, a look at verse 19 here in 1 Corinthians 9, and then we'll talk more about the idea of freedom. Paul writes this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So there it is. Paul just said that he is free from all. He's his own person. No one has claim over him. He can be whatever he wants and do whatever he wants, right? One of the things that we need to pay attention to when we're reading about freedom in Scripture is that it is always freedom from something. It is liberation from something. For most of us here in our context, we tend to think about freedom in terms of getting to enjoy our rights. The biblical context of, of freedom is liberation from some sort of bondage. Let me try to clarify things a bit. There's, there's nothing distinctly Christian about wanting freedom. Nothing at all. That is human nature. We want to be free. There is something distinct about Christian liberty, however. Christian liberty is, is freedom we have from striving to save ourselves. It's freedom from sin and death. It's not the same as political liberty. And when we conflate Christian liberty with political liberty, we get into all sorts of trouble. Let me trace the line of history that, that helps 
um, to illustrate this, and I'm going to show you how bad my Greek pronunciation is. Um, so here we go. The word Paul uses for freedom is Eleutheria, which is the name of the Greek goddess for freedom, Greek goddess of freedom. If you know anything about Greek and Roman mythology, you know that, that the Romans basically just borrowed the Greek gods. They just changed the names um, into uh, Latin. Um, Eleutheria is, is no different. In Rome, this goddess Eleutheria uh, is known as the goddess Libertas. And that's where we get our word in English, liberty. I'm going to read you something from a website. I'm going to read it, and then I'll give you the, um, the citation here in a minute. It says this, Although the Roman Empire is no more, the goddess Liberty still survives. Over the centuries and across cultures, she has continued to signify freedom in her appearances in paintings, sculptures, songs, stories, poems, and other literature. In recent centuries, the form she has most often taken is that of Lady Liberty. Libertas as Lady Liberty began emerging in America during the colonial era, era as part of the American quest for political independence from Britain. American patriot Paul Revere may have been the first to depict Lady Liberty in, the con in that context. In 1766, on the obelisk he created in celebration of the repeal of the Stamp Act, he used the image of liberty with the liberty pole surmounted by a liberty cap. Another patriot leader, Thomas Paine, included her in his poem, The Liberty Tree, referring to her as the goddess of liberty. Freedom goddess depictions not only emerged in America during its revolution, but a few years later in France during its own revolution with the female symbol of the French Republic, the Marianne, depicted wearing the liberty cap and also accompanied by Liberty's, uh, by Liberty's cap. Uh, so this will explain why Lady Liberty is a statue that is shared by both France and the United States. We both got this image from the ancient Roman goddess. And, and here's where it gets really revealing. The website continues. To many contemporary Wiccans and other pagans, Lady Liberty is more than a symbol. She is a powerful and ancient goddess who can guide, inspire, protect, and comfort. Pagans have invoked Lady Liberty in rituals for personal and or social liberation. Some pagans include her image in their household shrines and altars. Because of her ancient, ancient pagan origins, Lady Liberty is an excellent goddess to work with in support of pagan religious freedom. These are quotes from a website called Circle Sanctuary, which is an organization that considers itself to be a pagan ministry. This is our American history. Now, now why am I going into all of this? We really need to understand where all of this comes from. It's kind of like when you go to see a counselor. The counselor is going to ask you questions about your childhood, about your background. Why? Because the root of things that entangle you today started as seeds in your past. If you want to be untangled from whatever has a hold of you now, it's vital that you understand the root of it. You don't just cut it off at the surface. We commonly do that with individuals. 
But the same is true of entire societies and cultures. The idolization of freedom has deep roots. And yet we hold it as the highest of all moral virtues. And we'll point to verses about freedom in the Bible and, and use those to actually help support our idolatry of freedom. We, we claim that our idolatry freedom is actual godliness. Let's go back and see what Paul's really talking about here. Let's, let's look at this passage in Galatians that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. It's Galatians 5, and we'll look at verses 1 through 6, and then verses 13 through 15. See, so if you want to flip there, Galatians 5. Verses 1 through 6 say this. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. I'm going to skip down uh, to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So look at what he's saying here. The freedom that you have been given in Christ is freedom from the yoke of the law. The law was intended to give us an awareness of sin. It was never intended to save us. So to try to earn salvation through the works of the law is to weigh yourself down with a heavy yoke of slavery. Jesus fulfilled the law that we may no longer be subjected to that yoke of slavery, but could be free from it. We could be liberated from it. We're no longer enslaved by the law, but we are free in Christ. In other words, legalism or strictly adhering to the law will not slave us. In fact, it is a form of spiritual slavery. But freedom in Christ doesn't mean licentiousness either. It doesn't mean we just get to go do whatever we want. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. I mean, this is where our modern definition of freedom breaks down. And it simultaneously reveals the selfishness in our own hearts. Let me read it again. I'm going to read that definition. Freedom is the condition or right of being able or allowed to do, say, think, etc., whatever you want to without being controlled or limited. Christian liberty isn't about just being able to do whatever you want. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And this second, uh, this second section in Galatians calls us to, through love, serve one another. But here's where it's most revealing. When we abuse our freedom and we use it for our own interest, what we are revealing is that those things are what we ultimately want. 
In other words, if we were allowed to just do, say, or think whatever we wanted to without being controlled or limited, the results would be terrifying. And why is that? It's because our hearts are not aligned with the things of Christ. They're centered on ourselves. If our hearts were fully aligned with the things of Christ, then the things that we wanted to do, say, or think would actually be good things. So freedom for those whose hearts are perfectly aligned with Christ would be that we get to do, say, and think whatever we want because what we want is what Jesus wants, not just what we want, not just what serves ourselves. But that's, that's not what is true of us, is it? Let's go back and look at 1 Corinthians 9.19 again. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. If you remember last week, Paul went through his reasoning for not asking for money from the Corinthians. He, he didn't want them to be able to hold that over his head or think that they could control him or, or the message of the gospel by manipulation through finances. So he's free from that kind of pressure. He says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. So he's free, but he, he says this. What's he getting at? He sums it up in Romans 13.8. Listen to this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So Paul's free. He doesn't owe anyone anything so that they could lord it over him. What he does owe is a debt that cannot be repaid. He is and forever will be indebted to the love of Jesus. That is a debt that can never be repaid. It can only be paid forward. And so he's made himself a servant to all that he might win more of them with the love of Christ by which he is indebted to them. And the rest of the passage is going to flow from that. What does love require? What, what does this debt of love require of us? We'll ultimately see the culmination of this when we get to Romans 13, that, that famous passage about love. But all of what Paul is, is about to say and do flows from this debt of love. And it's going to mean sacrificing individual liberties and preferences. Let's continue. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. They're not, myself under the, uh, they're not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. If you've ever heard of the concept of contextualization, or you've ever engaged in any type of missionary training, or, or really even just read a missionary biography, then, then this passage should be pretty familiar. It is the passage that everyone points to when they're talking about contextualizing the gospel or, or um, kind of 
making the gospel more accessible to a particular culture or, or context. And I don't think that interpretation of this is wrong. I think it's a, a very legitimate application of this passage. I would love to send missionaries out from Redeemer. And if you want to be a missionary, this is something that I would talk to you about. It's, it's important that you have a thorough understanding of this idea. But today I'm not going to talk a lot about how missionaries should or shouldn't apply this. I'm going to talk to us here and apply it in our context. We love to claim that all Christians are missionaries, right? Y'all have heard that? All Christians are missionaries. I, I disagree with that um, for, for reasons I won't go into now. But for the sake of argument, let's just accept that position. All Christians are missionaries. We're, we're going to start from there. This, what Paul's doing here, this is what missionaries do. Successful ones anyway. So if we want to say that all Christians are missionaries, we, we need to be consistent. This, this is what missionaries are, are expected to do. So what is Paul doing when he says that he becomes a Jew to Jews or went outside the law to those outside the law or, or weak to those who are weak? He's laying aside his cultural and his societal identity. He grew up as a Jew in the Jewish tradition. He even called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. If he needed to show his proficiency in matters of the law, you weren't going to one-up him. He was fully proficient and, and able to engage the Jews on their level. And when he, was, when he was with the Jews, he would follow the customs of the Jews. He would refrain from eating pork. He would, he would do these things that were consistent with the culture, uh, the societal norms and expectations um, of the Jews. But if he was among the Gentiles, which is who God sent him out to, he would meet them as they were, and he would eat whatever was put in front of him as long as it wasn't a stumbling block to them. He would follow along with their societal norms. But look at how he talks about this. He becomes a servant to all. If a slave were sold from a Jewish family in Rome to a Gentile family in Corinth, the slave would have to adapt to a different culture. A slave doesn't get to go into the house and say, no, 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 that's not my culture. I don't do things that way. They don't, they don't get a say in how the house is run or, or what culture uh, is dominant in the house. And this is where our culture wars fail miserably. Notice something that Paul is doing. He's saying that he will become like the Jews, like those who are not under the law, or like those who are weak. What he does not say is that he will become strong. He does not say that he will lord his culture over others so that he can dominate them into becoming acceptable to Christ. He doesn't say he's going to impose a Christian worldview on those outside the body of Christ. This isn't some ideological warfare. He's not trying to, to put people in some philosophical chokehold so that they'll just tap out and say, yeah, I'll, I'll do it, I'll believe. He wants to win people with the gospel, with the love of Christ, with the kindness of God, not by force or strength. Look at what he says in verse 21. To those outside the law, 
I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Paul knows that he's under the law of Christ. He can't and won't act in ways unbecoming for a follower of Christ. He'll get to that in a second. But he doesn't need to expect those that he's bringing the gospel to, that they will act as if they're under the same law of Christ. It's irrational to expect that. Those who do not belong to Christ have allegiances that lie elsewhere, and their lives will naturally align with those allegiances. So to try to fix someone's sexual ethics or worldly lifestyle or political views when they have not yet submitted their life to the law of Christ completely misses the point of the gospel. There is no life transformation without the life-giving work of the Spirit in the gospel of Jesus. It must start there. And that's what Paul's doing. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Now, that last line is really interesting. That I might share with them in its blessings. The literal translation of that is that I may become a fellow partaker of it. By becoming a servant, Paul is taking the posture of Jesus. Look at this. He, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus had this attitude. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And in doing so, Paul is completing in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. In other words, Paul was making it his ambition to portray the life of Christ through his own life. As he put it, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If you are in Christ, does the gospel do this for you? Are you willing to inconvenience yourself and put yourself out for the gospel? Are you willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to lay down your identity for the gospel? Maybe we should start here. Do you know anyone well enough to know what it would mean to become like them for the sake of the gospel? Do you empathize with people from a gospel-saturated heart? Do you listen? Do you hear them as they tell you about their lives and their experiences? Or is the gospel just something that you agree with, that you'll give mental assent to, but it doesn't motivate you to these things? Is the gospel that would, is something that would compel you to owe a debt of love to others? Or is it just your means of personal salvation? Are you willing to have skin in the game? Or is it good enough that Jesus gave his skin for you? Now, these are uncomfortable questions, but they get to the heart of what Paul's saying. There's an error that we tend to make as we look at the next verses. It's, it's really hard for us to hold two truths in tension at the same time. 
But the reality is that, that two things can be true at the same time. And here's, here are two ideas that seem to be in tension um, as Paul is going through this. On one hand, is the gospel free? Or does it require our action? Okay. The answer is going to be yes to both of these. And Paul is going to, to make this clear as we go along. But he makes, he makes the first answer, that is the gospel free? He makes that very clear in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We don't earn our salvation. I want to make that clear. We cannot earn our salvation. No amount of good that we do gives us the right to be saved. And no amount of bad that we do condemns us if we are in Christ. The blood of Jesus is both necessary and sufficient. It can cover your sin. Your effort or works are not a factor at all in your justification before God. God's not going to look at your life and weigh out what you've done to see if he can accept you or not. He's going to look at the Lamb's book of life and see if your name is written in there. And your name is written in there not because of you, but because Jesus shed his blood. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it's going to feel a lot like Paul is undermining all of that in the next couple of verses. All right, let's look at the next couple of verses here. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do, they do it to win a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Okay. We have to be careful here. These verses have been ripped out of context and slapped across all kinds of Christian memorabilia for the purposes of motivating kids to forsake all else and devote themselves fully to the sport of their choice or maybe the sport of their parents' choice. The point of this passage is not strength or great performance. To see it as that is to remove it from its context. The point of this is to continue the theme of discipline and sacrifice for something of greater importance. And the visuals are pretty striking here. I want to address one thing before we continue in, in verse 24. The Christian life is not a competition or a contest. We aren't comparing ourselves to each other to see who the better Christian is. There isn't one Olympic gold medal of Christianity that we're all vying for. It's not what Paul's getting at. Paul's not saying that, that we just have to beat everyone else. The key to this entire passage is in the second sentence. So run that you may obtain it. So what is it? What is this prize there are two main ideas as to what Paul is referring to. One is that he's referring to eternal salvation. A lot of scholars hold to this. Probably about half the commentaries I looked at said that. The other idea is that the prize is those who, uh, who have received the gospel that he's preaching. So the prize is people. People who have accepted the message that Paul has preached to them. I actually don't think the prize is the main emphasis 
of this passage, though. And to make it the emphasis, I think, would be to take the analogy beyond what it's meant to do. We have to keep in mind what Paul's been doing this entire chapter. The main point of this is not the prize, but the way the race is won. And that point is strengthened in the next verses. I'm going to proceed, just, just cards on the table, I'm going to proceed from the view that the prize is talking about people that have believed the message that Paul has preached. You're welcome to disagree. And even if you do disagree, it doesn't change the overall point of the, the passage. But I'm going to proceed from that assumption, right, that that's, that's what he's talking about here. And just to kind of give you uh, some insight into what brought me to that or some things that helped to strengthen that, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says this, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, in the, the Olympic Games, the original Olympic Games, the prize was a, a laurel wreath or a, a crown. Okay? So when Paul uses this, this word crown of boasting, that's the same word as wreath. So in one, in one passage he says crown, in the other he says wreath. It's the same word in the Greek. It seems to me that he is referring to people as the prize. The prize is the fruit of the gospel. It's lives changed because they have believed and accepted the unadulterated gospel message. The prize is the imperishable wreath. And that flows from what we talked about last week. Paul would not allow himself to be bought out, so he sacrificed his rights, lest the gospel be manipulated by those who hold the purse strings. So again, you're welcome to disagree with my assessment of that. that that's fine. But at least you know where I'm, where I'm coming from and how I'm approaching this. Again, I don't think, regardless of which point, which direction you go, I don't think the main point of the passage changes. Continuing in, in verse 25, he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. I grew up playing sports, and, and I was around a lot of kids with a lot of talent, a lot of natural talent. But one thing about young kids with a lot of natural talent is that things often come way too easy for them. And you can tell by watching them that they often don't feel a need to continue to improve. So they don't, they don't work very hard. Now, I realize that is a broad generalization. It doesn't hold true for all kids. I, I get that. But you can watch high school practices, and you can see some of the fastest kids on the team lagging to the back when they're doing laps. It's just they don't feel like it's that, that important to work hard because it just comes so easy for them. But here's what happens to a lot of those kids. As other kids mature and their bodies grow and fill out, they start to bridge the gap with those kids that excelled early on. And they have the work ethic, or as Paul would put it, the self-control, to continue to better themselves as their bodies catch up. And often these kids that have had to work really hard for everything start to pass those who just had raw natural talent. If you talk to high-level athletes, like the ones that are competing in the Olympics, you'll discover some things about how disciplined they are. You'll discover that they count their calories. And not only do they count their calories, they know exactly where every calorie is coming from, what type of food it came from, and what it's going to do in their body. They also count their daily caloric output. So they know what's coming in. They know what's going out. They chart their sleep. They chart their rest. 
They, they have a training regimen. Everything is super strict. They have coaches that they hire. Their whole lives, not just when they're doing their sport, their entire lives are focused and centered around their discipline in this sport. Every detail is mapped out so that they can succeed. And that's what Paul is calling us to. But he makes it very clear. This isn't some temporal victory. We're talking about spiritual things, about matters that impact eternity. If athletes will train and, and devote themselves to things for temporal rewards, things that will pass away for some perishable wreath, why do we feel that it's okay to be lackadaisical in our approach to spiritual matters? To just do it halfway. To not be all in, but just to kind of be around. We don't run aimlessly. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and we run to him. We don't beat the air like an untrained boxer. He's just flailing his arms. No, we tuck in, we maintain our focus, and we strike with the message of the gospel. Every inch of our lives falls under the discipline that the gospel requires. See, and that's where that second tension point comes in. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith. And yes, the salvation that we have received by grace through faith requires that we redirect the focus of our lives, that we live disciplined lives, lives disciplined by our love for Jesus. The word Paul uses there for discipline my body in verse 27 indicates that he is beating his own body into submission. But he's beating his body with the gospel. See, not even our spiritual discipline is of our own strength. It's the gospel that disciplines us. It's the gospel that brings us in line with the life of Jesus and the will of the Father. And so no matter how mature we get in the faith, we don't grow beyond the gospel. The gospel is the message by which we were saved, are being saved, and will be saved. And we must preach it constantly to ourselves and to others. The rest of this verse can seem problematic for us. It says, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So based on, on my understanding of this text, what Paul is referring to when he talks about the prize is a disqualification from continuing in ministry. It'd be like a, a, a pastor or a minister being disqualified because he had fallen into some form of idolatry. But even if he's talking about disqualification from salvation, let me address that for a second. If the prize is salvation, he's saying, uh, lest I be disqualified, he's, he's not saying that you can lose your salvation. He's saying that by falling into idolatry and going headline, headlong into um, worshiping idols or, or something other than Jesus, then that just shows that your salvation wasn't real in the first place. It's inauthentic. And you just raised your hand, prayed a prayer, walked down the aisle and said, yes, I'm a believer, but you, you were never really in with Jesus. You never really knew him or loved him. Uh, again, I, I hold that it is disqualification from the ministry, so I'm going to proceed again from that viewpoint. 
Right? Paul has talked at length about being disciplined and sacrificing of himself so that the gospel message can be clearly heard. He wants to empty himself and become all things to all people that some may hear and receive this message of the gospel. In other words, at the end of the day, he wants to hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he's saying there's a danger that he could miss out on that. There's a danger of contextualizing to such a degree that sure, society will accept you, but you yourself are undisciplined and end up syncretizing with the world. You end up losing the message of the gospel and combining it with whatever local mythology or folk religions that are around you. And, and that's why discipline is so important for Paul here. He's stepping into the world. He's engaging with the ideas of the world. We saw that very clearly when he engaged at the Areopagus. He began to tell them about this unknown God that they had a statue to honor. The point was not that Paul began to also worship that statue as the one true God, but he leveraged their culture as a launching pad for the gospel message. See, he didn't allow himself to become like a, a boxer just beating the air and grabbing at whatever thing that he thought would tickle their ears. He didn't allow himself to, to run aimlessly and get caught up in the idolatry of the Athenians. Instead, he leveraged their idolatry and brought it into submission with the gospel. To be undisciplined and instead of leveraging the culture as a means of proclaiming the gospel, to actually sacrifice the gospel instead by falling into worldly idolatry is to disqualify yourself. If what's at stake is losing our gospel ministry, what does it say about our love for God and for our neighbors if we're content to live disqualified lives, knowing that our salvation is secure, but not running in such a way so that we might win the prize, not being disciplined. What does it say that we're not about inviting as many as possible to come with us into the kingdom? Let me give an example about how this has happened re recently. This is going to sound political. It touches on politics. But I, I want to be clear, this, this is not political, okay? So disconnect yourselves from your political leanings, whichever way those are, for just a minute and hear what I'm saying. Hear me again. This is not about your politics. It doesn't matter where you fall on the political spectrum, you're welcome here. We want Redeemer to be a place where, where people with all kinds of convictions on matters of conscience can thrive. So please hear what I'm saying and don't add in things that I'm not saying. One thing that is abundantly clear is that many Christians over the past five years or so have sold out entirely to Donald Trump. I'm not talking about voting for him. I have no issue with people that have voted for him. I want to be clear on that. This is not about who you voted for. I'm talking about devotion to the man, about idolatry, and it is widespread. I want you to listen for a second to the words of one prominent Christian radio host as he talks about the election, which he believes was stolen. 
He says this, it's like stealing the heart and soul of America. It's like holding a rusty knife to the throat of Lady Liberty. And he went on to say this to Donald Trump in a phone call. Listen to this. I'd be happy to die in this fight. This is a fight for everything. God is with us. Do you hear the idolatry? Even down to the goddess Libertas herself. Now this radio host has been able to produce no evidence of a stolen election, but he's so wrapped up in the worship of Donald Trump, this man that he considers to be God's anointed, and he's so committed to getting him back in power that he's willing to sacrifice his life for this man. And this was peddled as the Christian position. It wasn't just a fringe position either. A prominent, well-known, widely respected pastor in California also said this to Donald Trump on a phone call. He said, any real, true believer is going to be on your side in this election. That is not the gospel, folks. It's easy to see that the conflation between Christianity and American politics runs deep. Anything Donald Trump said, many would hold as absolute truth. Anything else was fake news. You started to see all of his talking points being parroted by Christians across America, even in pulpits. Some are still echoing his lies in pulpits. Many, many Christians begin to follow and repeat the propaganda of QAnon. QAnon held Trump up to be a savior, the chosen one. Many Christians have become petrified of the deep state and all kinds of fabricated, uncorroborated conspiracy theories conspiracies about and proposed cures completely devoid of all medical evidence for COVID have become rampant. And all of this followed whatever Donald Trump claimed to be true. Preachers across America prophesied that Trump would, without a doubt, be reelected. Some even agreed Listen to this. Some even agreed to subject themselves to the test of being a false prophet. If you look at Deuteronomy, the penalty of that, if you're wrong, is death. This big lie initiated by Donald Trump and perpetuated by Christian leaders in this nation said that despite, any, uh, despite a complete absence of any evidence, the election had been stolen, and Donald Trump would be reinstated. This is still going. They're saying, what is it, August 13th that he's going to be reinstated? It's, it's still going. And all of this culminated in the events of January 6th, where we saw the Christian flag and all kinds of Christian phrases and symbols plastered over people who were surrounding the Capitol, going into the Capitol, many of them in the name of Jesus. God help us. 
There were even prayers to Jesus, in Jesus' name, uttered inside the Capitol as they were breaking in to try to disrupt the counting of the ballots. All of this happened because of idolatry. It was idolatry of a man, and it was idolatry of this American way of life that he promised to protect. It was an idolatry of liberty that he promised to uphold, and he convinced everyone it was being attacked. It was about protecting the quote-unquote Christian ideals of this nation, of which he proclaimed himself to be the chosen one. He was the one God chose to protect this godly nation of America. It's the conflation of Christianity with America that has been happening since the founding of our country. And it's exactly what Paul is warning about. Do you know that the early church wouldn't even allow members to become a part of the military because to be a part of the military meant devotion to Caesar? And just like this devotion to Donald Trump, the church considered that to be idolatry. So they wouldn't let their members go be in the military. Uh, I'm not saying that that, I'm not making a statement on whether or not people should be in the military here. That, that's not what that's about. But that was what was required, complete devotion to a man. And so here's what has happened in the midst of all of this. Christians have lost credibility. The divine conspiracy this story that God came to earth as a man, died on a cross in ancient Rome, and was raised from the dead three days later, is a crazy story. Yet that story is absolutely true. But when the world sees Christians diving into all kinds of verifiably false nonsensical conspiracies that are based on nothing but their allegiance to and even worship of a leader who has promised them everything they want in return for their unquestioned loyalty, the world is going to write off the rest of what we say, this true message of the gospel, as nonsense as well. And so in chasing all of that, many professing Christians have disqualified themselves in idolatrous worship of a man and set up stumbling blocks in the way of the truth of the gospel. Credibility for so many has been utterly destroyed. As followers of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, it is of utmost importance that our, our lives be shaped by and in pursuit of what is true. Idols don't require the truth. In fact, they thrive on lives. They're built on lives, on lies. We must reject all manner of falsehoods, foolish arguments, and meaningless conspiracies, rejecting the idols that would lead us down those paths and running the race disciplined so as to win the prize. In the words of Paul, we must exercise control, self-control in all things. In the terms laid out in this passage, Paul would have been fine with becoming like an American 
to reach Americans. He'd have been fine with adopting American culture to an extent. But when it came to this kind of idolatry, he would clearly say it is not within the law of Christ. See, as Christians, we aren't our own. We are bought with a price and we bear the name of Jesus. We are his ambassadors in this world. And the message he has entrusted us to as ambassadors is the gospel, nothing else. And we must be disciplined to represent that message faithfully. That means we lay down all other allegiances and forsake our rights in this world as necessary so that the gospel message may go forth. And as the gospel message goes forth, we get to share in the gospel. We get to become partakers of it. We share in both its blessing and its mission. We share in the future glory of our Savior and King, and we share in the, the joy of getting to take this good news into the dark places on this earth and watch as it fills that darkness. And Jesus rescues people out of that darkness and brings them in to his marvelous light. May it be not just true of us as believers in Jesus, but widely known of us that we cling far more tightly to Jesus than we do to our rights or our freedoms. May we be disciplined in our worship and liberal in our love because he is worthy. May our lives truly be a living sacrifice laid down in his name that he may be exalted. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word. You've given us the truth. You've given us your son. You've rescued us from the slavery to sin that we have all um, that we are all in because of our flesh, because of our sin. And Father, you've liberated us. You've given us freedom. And no matter how many rights we lay down in this world, we have freedom that can't be taken. Father, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus where our freedom is true and untouchable. Not fearful about who's going to take our rights now. Let us freely lay those down so that we will have the opportunity to say, no, Jesus is better. Father, that, let that be the mark of our lives. Let that be what we are known for, that we love Jesus and we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.